Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name's Craig Forces. I am here with Stephanie Carvin and Philip Lagasse for our second edition of Her Majesty in Right of Pod. <music> Stephanie, what are we talking about today? I don't know. You guys give me a list of things. <laughs> there's there's some doctrines, there's some acts, and there's a guy called Blackstone, I think. And then we get up to the charter, maybe. Um, so th- I recognize that one. So there's a lot of things. But basically, in, in a nutshell, this is going to be one long heritage minute. So last time we talked a lot about how the British parliamentary system was formed. There was some wars. There were some demands. There was some requests for taxes. There was some religious disputes. There were some people who lost their heads. There was an English Civil War. And then there was a glorious revolution. And uh, then we learned about some things like ministerial responsibility, parliamentary supremacy, responsible government, rule of law. So I guess the, the question I would have in my role as Oshawa person is how did that come to Canada um, when, you know, the, the kind of colonial government was being established? So I thought maybe we should talk about that today and you guys can explain some of the things that you put on this list to me because <laughs> I'm a bit lost. So I think we're going to start off with um, the doctrine of reception. Yeah, so the reception then of the what British law. What does that law. mean? So it's basically the reception of the British law into the fabric of, of what becomes Canadian law. And so the issue is how is it imported? How does it move from the British Isles to this environment? The first the caveat, of course, is that... Uh, we're a colony, a former colony. And in consequence, the rules in Britain in terms of what laws apply in colonies were the ones that were most applicable. There's a North American spin on this, and we'll probably try to bring this in in the course of our conversation. The complicating aspect of, of this conversation in the Canadian context is the the British reception law really distinguished between colonies that were the product of conquest, so think New France, and colonies that were the product of settlement. That is, that they were not already the established property, if you will, of a sovereign that had been defeated in a war. And so the fiction in Canadian reception law is that, first of all, there was a conquest that really was what we would now call central Canada, so Quebec and Ontario, which were at the time in 1763, Treaty of Paris, were transferred from France, from, from New France, into a part of British North America. But the rest of the country effectively is treated as areas that had been settled, never conquered, ignoring entirely the presence of indigenous peoples. And so right at the inception of this reception of British law into Canada, there is a denial of the presence of the indigenous fact. Right. There's a, there's this uh, doctrine of discovery that you sometimes read about, uh, which is a more or less in the U.S. context, but similar notions playing here. The idea that these people were not cultivating the land, they weren't really using it, therefore we have discovered the land, therefore it's ours. Yeah, and that certainly comes through in the American jurisprudence and decisions of the first Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, Marshall. In part, it, the doctrine of discovery was a means of determining which of the competing European sovereigns could lay the best claim to so-called newly discovered territory. But it was in the U.S. context very quickly imported into the American jurisprudence to establish that indigenous populations and First Nations in our parlance, that those groups really possessed only what we would call a usufructory right to the land. They could use the land, but they had no sovereign title to it. Usufructory. A a right to use the land rather than having sovereign title to it. The other thing that the Doctrine of Discovery really brought to the conversation was the idea that the sovereign, in this case for British North America, the British sovereign had a monopoly on alienation of the land. So if there were to be any transfer of land from 
uh, an Indigenous group, the transfer had to be to the sovereign, not to a private individual. Yeah, Craig, could you maybe elaborate a little bit on that? Because this is always something that I've I've been curious about, but as a political scientist, I know it a little bit less. So within the the British context, obviously at this stage, parliament is supreme and the crown is understood to be uh, subservient to the parliament. However, when it comes to colonies, it seems like the crown is the primary power to some extent. Like it has additional powers when dealing with colonies in a way that it wouldn't have within the United Kingdom itself. And then as a crown fanboy, this kind of (laughs) leads to this idea that within a Canadian construct, the the primary institution at the beginning of of British Canada begins as the crown. And this is really uh, a concept that's been around for some time, that Canada, even more so than the United Kingdom, whether in New France under the the French monarchy, and then in, in British North America in the Canadian context, that the crown is really the first institution or the primary power when it comes to forming what Canada is going to be. Yeah, that's very true. The prerogative, which we talked about last day, so this is the once absolute power of the monarch essentially to dictate rules that that govern in their society, that prerogative has a greater sweep in terms of colonial governance. Now, the probably the most famous manifestation of that in early Canadian history would be the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which, again, alluding to this idea that one of the offshoots of discovery was the notion that when Indigenous populations so-called alienated their territory, that is, transferred territories through treaties, that that transfer could only be to the Crown and not to private individuals. The Royal Proclamation codified that expectation as well. Uh, And keep in mind that the preoccupation in 1763 in, in terms of the relationship between what was then newly conquered New France and parts of British North America, the British already uh, were sovereign over, the preoccupation there was a balance of power with a still formidable indigenous uh, population and nations. Uh, that begins to wane after 1763. So by the time you get to, say, the War of 1812, the indigenous fact in terms of the regulation of, of diplomatic and, and political and legal preoccupations in North America is no longer as front and center. But the bottom line, Phil, in terms of your observation is absolutely the Crown has a, a more plenary absolute power in, in colonies and, and points effectively royal governors, the governor general, to conduct governance in the colonies, especially in what was conquered New France. And so what we would call today Ontario and Quebec, there the governors were quite absolute in their exercise of power. It was a more complicated relationship in the 13 colonies to right. the south, which had a tradition of a more active legislative branch. And, and just a, an offshoot of that, I think getting back to this notion of conquest, I think this is something that's hotly debated even today about the Royal Proclamation of 1763, namely, is this a conquering crown that sees Aboriginal peoples as its subjects now, or viewed from the Aboriginal perspective, is it uh, a sovereign-to-sovereign relationship that they're attempting to establish? And ultimately, there seems to be, even today, a fundamental disagreement amongst those who interpret this about what exactly is happening here. What's the understanding of the Crown's relationship with First Nations? I was just going to ask that because we hear so much about that today, right? Like with a lot of the court cases we've had on Indigenous issues that actually it comes back to, no, like we don't have to talk to the Canadian government. We could actually have a separate relationship with the Crown. Yeah, that's absolutely clear, it seems to me, from the contemporary discussion, say, in what we would call the Seven Years' War, that the and First Nations, I mean, I'm thinking here specifically, not exclusively, but specifically of the Six Nations, saw themselves in a nation-to-nation relationship, as did the French allies uh, in the Seven-Year War. And so it, it's interesting uh, 
to the extent to which 1763 and the Royal Proclamation, to the extent that the language there suggests that there's an assertion of sovereignty, and certainly in the British perspective by that time, especially with preoccupations over expanding the frontier, especially over the Appalachians, they're, they're driven by a, a settlement preoccupation. Uh, and you can see that sort of coloring the language in, in the 1763 proclamation. But there are actually interesting sort of offshoots of that. So one of the leading negotiators on the British side, and actually in what we would now call the United States, was negotiating in the Niagara region with uh, First Nations. And there was an aspect of that transfer uh, of, of land in the treaty arrangements that was personally made to him, and he flipped it over to the Crown. Right. So this was there was sort of this uh, preoccupation with to whom could you transfer land in these settlements. Well, I, I just find it fascinating because obviously when when these uh, different treaties are going to be negotiated in the con- the next centuries, you, you certainly get a sense, at least from the British and the Canadians that are negotiating this, that they take a very kind of sovereignist kind of view of this, that ultimately uh, these peoples have are now belonging under uh, the sovereignty of the British crown, and therefore they can be treated as such. Whereas from the Indigenous perspective, that's certainly not how they're seeing it. And those tensions are going to underlie a lot of, uh, of the, these treaty understandings and negotiations. Finally, maybe in the 20th, late 20th century, early 21st century, we're now coming back to maybe more the indigenous perspective, but originally it's a very colonialist mentality. I mean, uh, I don't think there's any point in glossing that over. This is a, a conquering crown to some extent, no matter how kind of nice it may have seemed or, or uh, tried to present itself, present itself in a yeah. different way. In in some sense, we have to be clear about this, that this is a, a settling, conquering entity at this point. Yeah, and, and certainly the European perspective and specifically the British perspective about land ownership is dramatically different from what you would find in other parts of the world. And so the expectation, and actually, in fact, the tradition still is that the underlying title in all territory belongs to the crown. Right. Uh, and therefore, uh, that's the manifestation of sovereignty. It really is crown land. And so uh, at that point, uh, others, settlers will achieve a fee simple, that is a property interest, uh, an ownership interest in the land, but still the undergirding entitlement to the land is with the crown. And if, for example, if one owns property and the chain of title of that property evaporates and there's no one to whom that property will uh, then go, the property will revert to the crown. Right. Right? And I think it's important to link it back to what we talked about last time. I mean, this goes w- all the way back to the Norman Conquest. I mean, mm-hmm. the idea that when when uh, William the Conqueror kind of comes in, all the land that is England belongs to him ultimately. Right, and the I barons mean, have fiefs. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. It's, it's just reinforcing that even though we're Canada, even though we're in North America, in many ways, we're still kind of medieval in our understanding of, of property and and the role of, of the crown as, as a sovereign landowner, as it were. Yeah. And and so coming back to this conf- conversation about reception, Stephanie, right. so in conquered territories, the rule was, the British rule was that the law of the conquered remained intact until such time as displaced either by the royal prerogative or displaced by a statute of parliament that might apply to it. And so take, for example, the Quebec Act of... 1774. My favorite act. Right. And so the Quebec Act more or less preserved the Coutume de Paris, the, the civil law tradition in Quebec, at least for private law matters. And so what we would call now property tort contract. And so it preserved that, that uh, civil law tradition, which remains to this day in the rest of the provinces. And so take Ontario. And Ontario... The very first act, I believe, in 1792 uh, that was enacted uh, in relation to what we would now call Ontario or Upper Canada at the time incorporated the British 
common law system, and so it became a common law jurisdiction, notwithstanding that much of that territory had been under the New France regime. The rest of the country considered settled, and so the doctrine in British law was that settled territory automatically British law would apply. So basically the law followed the flag, that is, the followed the settlers. Again, dispensing with the fact that these were territories in which there was a significant indigenous population. And so that's our reception is predicated effectively on the importation of European law through an act of colonization. It's as simple as that. When we talk about the doctrine of reception, this wasn't a planned thing. No, no. This is, no. These are established principles that really grew up in the British context in relation to the near abroad, right? And so some of those islands that are part of the British Isles, the Isle of Man, etc., that have their sort of peculiar legal institutions. So these were early common law cases uh, and deliberations and treatises that were written about how British law applies to these territories. And as the British expanded their footprint in the world, these these principles also uh, developed. And so Australia and New Zealand have similar principles that apply to their territories with some caveats. And it still holds true today for what we would call kind of the, the crown territories overseas, correct? I mean, there's some of, the, some of these British territories still fall under this this concept, if I understand correctly. I, be, I believe so. Now, that yeah. the reality is that there are British laws of, that are often particular to those territories. Right. Um, and so I was reading the Chagas case yesterday from the International Court of Justice. This is the Diego Garcia. Uh, oh, right. right. And okay. so you may uh, know that in February, the British lost a case in front of the International Court of Justice saying that the, Ch the Chagas Archipelago was improperly retained by the British during the decolonization of Mauritius and that the British must uh, proceed with the decolonization in recognition of the rights of self-determination of the people in this archipelago, many of whom, if not all of them, have been displaced. I was going to say, yeah, have, <laughs> it's, have, it's more have, than just mishandling it. Right. It's the fact that, like, they actually took the people off the islands, right. they lost their homes, and then gave it to the United States, and they've used it as a military base. But just to go back to this point, there are British law particular to this region, and so right. you would find sort of idiosyncratic pieces of legislation and not just general law. I mean, I, so is was you you mentioned you know before you started taping Blackstone was this his idea? Yeah, was so Blackstone, his Blackstone's commentaries are often the source for understanding what the common law was in the 18th century. And so when we talk about Blackstone, it's often people pointing to Blackstone to say this is what Blackstone said. He said conquered territory. It's the law of the conquered people that apply up until displacement by Parliament. Settled territory, the common law is automatically flowing uh, through the act of settlement to apply to that territory. And now it's a chain of bookstores <laughs> in the UK if you're going to buy law books. But th uh, that's interesting. I mean, the, the picture you guys have painted so far, and, and I'd never really thought of this. I mean, for me, when I think of the Quebec Act, I think of it as the start of Canadian pluralism. Mm -hmm. Again, um, acknowledging the fact that Indigenous people were not yet considered part of that picture. But um, it's the idea that you can have difference major differences in the way that things are run so it sounds like we have a, a quebec basically set up so that it can still have the catholic church you can still have it, it it's kind of civil code in a lot of ways and in, you know ontario has its kind of interpretation of commonwealth law and then everyone else in canada has british law Effectively, it's well, everywhere so else outside systems. of Quebec is all common law. Okay. Yeah, so I would say two systems. Okay. And I would add now in a modern context that the third system would be indigenous law. As Phil suggested, there's now a recognition of the indigenous uh, legal tradition in a way that probably wouldn't have been true even when I was in law school, say, 20 or 30 years ago. So this brings us to a point where we have an upper Canada, which is Ontario, and a lower Canada, which is Quebec. 
and they're hanging out. Right. And so not to deny also the presence of Newfoundland. And so we have colonies also by this time in Nova Scotia. Very soon after, we had New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island. And so those comprise uh, British North America with Upper Canada and Lower Canada. Now, of course, after 1776, no longer does British North America include the 13 colonies to the south. And so we're left with... Yeah, we opted with a, out of that. <laughs> right. <laughs> we're left with, uh, well, for lack of a better term, a, a residue along what we now call the Canada-U.S. border, because that's where most of the colonization really is in terms of uh, settlement, patterns of settlement. It was clustered as it is still along the border to the southern reaches of those territories. And so we get to what, let's say, the 1830s. We mentioned this before. We begin to have some unrest in Upper and Lower Canada. Canada, the unrest in 1837 is really over this concept of responsible government because governance is done by the governor with a group of his cronies, uh, a group local of elites, local elites yeah. with his cronies, right? So the family compact uh, is, or, or yeah, is, we hear is, this expression a lot. The, can the chateau clique. Yeah, can can I, I remember this from my like grade eight textbook? Can right. you uh, explain that? They're the primary elite within the colony. Yeah, I mean, if you want to start talk about the historical origins of the Laurentian elite. It would probably be these two groups, right? I mean, it's not Preston Manning. Well, no, Preston Manning would be somebody kind of opposed to this, right? But if you, you <laughs> kind of go back to, I just thought the, maybe the, he invented the. Term. No, the, the, well, I think it was John Ibbotson. Uh, but the, the the long tradition that we have in Canada of this idea of certain kind of uh, an elite crust in Montreal and Toronto who kind of control things, and the rest of the country kind of bows to their their basic wishes or, or priorities, and you can see this all the way from the Chateau Clique up to SNC Lavalin, depending on how you want to interpret things. But this idea that Canada getting back to my crown fanboyishness that the it's the crown kind of governing uh with these commercial interests that are really governing canada and ultimately this comes to a head in in, in the rebellions that we see yeah so the issue was there were legislative assemblies in both the jurisdictions and also in what we now call atlantic canada but those legislative assemblies had no real power there was a preoccupation with taxation they did have uh some control over taxation but beyond that they couldn't control or govern policy. They didn't have the competency, say, of a parliament to pass legislation that was truly binding in the absence of the will of, of the governor. And the governor, of course, was accountable to London because this was still a colony. And so you didn't have local governance of any real sort, nor did you have that clasp that we talked about last day between those who sit in the assembly and those who advise, in this case, the governor. And so you had uh, Mackenzie in, in uh, Upper Canada lead up. William Lyle Mackenzie? And a board of rebellion, not, not one that really amounted to much. There was the some only thing I remember marches and shots he... fired and a few people killed. And then he fled to Buffalo. And that's actually the genesis of the Caroline incident upon which I wrote my book a few years ago. It's <laughs> Good, all, they're all like, tied together. I just remember the fact that he... The grand like, unifying theory here. He's alleged to have fled dressed as a woman. That was the only thing I, I didn't, remember about I didn't that. encounter anything of that sort. Really? There's, a, there's a long tradition, though, in, in that... British history of people fleeing dressed as women. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, uh, this is actually quite important. This, this could is, be a whole episode for us. I, I believe... <laughs> <laughs> was it one of the Charleses who had also, or, yeah, actually, or one did. of the Stuarts Char- who dressed um, as a woman? It was the son of uh, Charles I. Uh, uh, Charles, Charles II, II yeah. uh, I believe. Uh, anyway, so one of those, or maybe it was James II. Anyway, lots of fleeing dressed as women. It, uh, there's a good episode. There's a new yeah. podcast so, called so, Noble Blood, and we, they had yeah. an episode on on Charles II so, fleeing. So something we can still look forward to in Brexit. So... so <laughs> <laughs> um, wait, so, so let me just ask this, because this is the question sticking out in my head, but I, I think perhaps you've answered it, and I might just be slowly gluing my brain cells together, which is, you know, last week we talked about the fact that Britain has actually not done too badly, I mean, there was some wars and some people losing their heads, was setting up its responsible government by this time. Mm. But in Canada, we have 
responsible-ish government, but really it's the governor. And so it's a yeah, different, it's, not, it's a totally different system. In, in fact, the le- Lieutenant Governor Head, who was the Lieutenant Governor at the time in 1837, said the idea in, of responsible government in a colony was a constitutional monstrosity. Why? Because how could you have a colony that's supposed to be governed from London while at the same time the governor is supposed to be somehow accountable to the, a legislative body, a local legislative body? And so there was no possible way to reconcile these things in his view. That was, was that a very like, traditional view. Was that like a 19th century mic drop? This is a constitutional <laughs> No, I, I, th- I think the, tr- the true mic drop is the, the Durham report. Yeah, yeah I mean, so that oh, comes afterwards. So after the rebellion, right, yeah. they send Lord Durham to contemplate the, the reform in uh, Upper and Lower Canada. And do you want to talk about that, Phil? Well, I think it's it's often remembered as uh, Lord Durham recommending the assimilation of Quebec francophones or francophones in Canada. And, and certainly when somebody like myself who grew up in the Quebec educational system, that's what it's remembered for, that this was this terrible British lord who came over and recommended that we get rid of uh, the French factor in, in uh, British North America. The other side to it, though, is he did recommend the system of responsible government where you would have self-governing colonies. And so this this idea was planted. And there's a bit of a tension here because Canadians tend to want to take ownership of responsible government as a concept. And getting back to the Heritage Minute, you do have this infamous uh, or famous Heritage Minute where Queen Victoria says, oh, responsible government, what a great Canadian idea or whatever it is. Of course, the reality is that most of the principles that we now recognize as responsible government had already been developing in the UK. But the term responsible government, as, as we tend to now use it, does originate in a Canadian context. And the British, even today, are still a little bit uncomfortable with that. They don't really uh, use it all that often. The Supreme Court just did in the prorogation ruling. But they, they tend to understand their system as kind of being this uniquely British thing. And then you'll have Australians and Canadians and New Zealanders kind of saying, no, 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 what you have is called responsible government. It's this thing. And so it's a little bit of a tension here in terms of how much of it is actually British, how much of it is Canadian. But in a Canadian context, what you're basically saying is that those who exercise and advise the governor need to be responsible. Because I remember the, watching that Heritage Minute when I was yeah. a kid. Sorry, I'm interrupting. Yeah. Yeah. But like, I just remember think, being so proud that Canada had invented governments. Right. That so, was the impression <laughs> and, and that's that's kind of the typical Canadian thing, <laughs> right? We, we, we think we're being very, very special <laughs> here. But the reality is what we're talking about is a group of people who's responsible for advising the governor and then responsible for exercise of executive power is then accountable to uh, the legislative body and can be removed uh, through uh, the withdrawal of confidence of that body, which, as we discussed last time, is something that, that had been percolating and developing over certain uh, number of centuries in the UK. Right. And the subset of th- is that, of course, those people sit in the legislative body. And so those who wield executive power de facto also sit as legislators in that legislative assembly. Now, that was not necessarily something that was easily reconciled with the idea of, of, of governance over a colony. And, but as Phil suggested, eventually the impasse is overcome with the idea that you could have governance within the colony on matters that are local, while the imperial parliament and the imperial government continued to control the external relations of that colony with the prospect that would be some kind of fiat uh, or ability to veto what went on in that colony. And then you see some of that in the 1867 Act, which we'll get to eventually. Yeah. Craig, could you talk a little bit about something called paramount force? Now, the, the Australians talk mm-hmm. a lot about this, but we don't tend to use that kind of terminology. Sounds like an amazing video game. No, it is. I, I find the Australians have these these really cool terms that we don't talk about enough in Canadian public law. So paramount force, head of head of power, these types of things. So paramount force kind of links up with the, the power of the imperial parliament over the colony. Right. Yeah. And so the uh, the idea that you're ultimately the, the font of authority remains the imperial parliament and the imperial parliament can continue to enact f- 
for purposes of the colonies up until a point where consent is required and we can talk about that. But just fast forwarding a long way, that's one of the reasons why, for example, the Constitution Act of 1867 was an act of the Imperial Parliament right. in the UK. And so too, the Canada Act of 1982, which embedded the Constitution Act of 1982, including the Charter. So again, those were acts of the British Parliament. And so there was, you're right, this paramountcy that existed. And so you had this division between local and, and, and more international or foreign, uh, a division of labor of sorts, which had knock-on effects for Canada that were quite important, not least it's, it remains to this day a bit am ambiguous in our constitutional fabric, uh, the, the way we're supposed to run our foreign affairs. So right. you know, the Constitution Act of 1867, which we should talk about soon, doesn't really anticipate there being any domestic authority over foreign affairs. There's some reference to imperial treaties and the like, but uh, an autonomous foreign affairs power is not really reflected anywhere in the fabric of that of that statute. And so what do you do with that going forward? And this is where you have some tension between, say, the Quebec view and the federal view about the role of a province and the federal government in international relations. It's never really something that they had to turn their mind to in early Canadian history because you had an imperial colonial system. And would that include that the foreign affairs? That would also include national security? Well, so what we would call national security would be probably in the era would be called defense. And there, the uh, up until, what, the early 1900s, it was British forces that largely garrisoned Canada with a militia, uh, a Canadian militia, but uh, the defense really fell t to the imperial government. And I think it's important here to, to note the historical importance and origin of Section 15 of the British North America Act 1867. So that section which identifies the Queen as uh, the commander, uh, holding the powers of command-in-chief for all forces in and of Canada. And the idea here would be, when you look at it historically, you would have a British uh, general or commander-in-chief within the British North American colonies, and they could therefore lay claim and control of any local militia or anything like that. So that, that section, which the Supreme Court in Canada has now kind of hinted at, maybe has some importance for national security matters in Canada, or at least maybe incorporate certain prerogative powers within the, the Canadian construct. Uh, I know Craig's disagreeing with me yeah. on that. But We're going to have a total fight the, about that one the, day. The historical <laughs> origins of that, of that provision are such that it still ensures that, uh, that there's no question that the defense of Canada can be uh, unified under a British command system. So, okay, so, we, you know, we keep talking about So we the, skipped forward a bit here to 1867. Yeah, to 1867. Should, so should we I, unpack that a bit? Yeah, so can I, uh, basically the situation post-1837, after these rebellions and Lord the Durham, Durham comes Report, in. Yeah, he, you have, basically you do have some kind of assembly at this point, a national one, and local. Well, so to be clear here, you didn't have confederation of the British North American colonies. What you did no. have after Durham is the fusion of Upper and Lower Canada into a single colony of Canada, and that then produces some of the tensions that Phil was alluding to because of demographic changes. And so you had this tension between the Francophone and Anglophone population that was embedded in this now fused entity of what is now Ontario and Quebec. And that didn't work so well. Uh, and so there's this tension that's acute all through the, well, up to the 1860s until Confederation. That Canada unit is not working very well. And so you had that happen. You didn't actually have responsible government right away. In fact, responsible government comes to that new fused entity of Canada relatively late. It's first manifest in Nova Scotia by the, what, the 1850s. Um, it comes eventually to the Canada, uh, that is the fused entity. Uh, and the other thing that's happening by the 1860s is, well, pretty significant economic disruption. You've got the American Civil War. Uh, you've got a bunch of little colonies clustered around the 
you know, the northern border of the U.S., which don't necessarily have a joined, conjoined economy. There's a concern about financing railways, very expensive undertaking, and there's a concern, just to allude to the prior comments about defense, the fear is that that Union Army, once it's victorious, will just turn around, head north, and exercise its manifest destiny over North America. And this is, the, but there were American politicians actually campaigning on this. They yeah. thought this was a great idea. Yeah, and there was no prospect of any serious defense. By that time, the demographic weight was strongly in the American favor. And while it's true the British Navy probably could, could have continued to harry the the eastern seaboard of the United States, there was no prospect, there was no prospect as of the 1840s, frankly, that Canada could be defended along its land borders. I, I went through the memos from the Duke of Wellington from the mm. 1840s, and the oh. Duke of Wellington was assessing the defensibility of of Canada and concluded that the only place that was plausibly defensible was Quebec City for obvious reasons, topography. Right. Right. Uh, and of course, that hadn't worked out so well for the defenders back in the, you know, the Seven Years' War, but still, there was no prospect of staving off a long-term invested effort by the Americans to we conquer Canada. We didn't even have a capital city at this point. This is when the parliament's moving around every well, two years yeah, or so, Well, yeah, so right? by that time, by with the conjoined Canadas, we have Ottawa eventually is settled as the capital of the conjoined Canada before Confederation. And so um, it, it had been in Kingston, you're right, and then it moved to Ottawa. And it was Mon in Montreal. The, 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 the Montreal it, parliament was burned down. Yeah. yeah so. It happens. It does. Okay. So now we get to 1867. So that's the context for 1867 and what we would call Confederation. Can I just ask one more thing? Yeah. Why wasn't the assembly working i mean briefly like we, there's that movie sir john a Macdonald, which was like in, you know, in the conjoined canada the upper yeah, and lower just, canada like, put can together you give, like the, the 22nd version of that well basically i think it, it comes back down to the ten linguistic tensions right it uh it's very difficult to try and govern two very different societies and i think ultimately this comes down to when you do get involved in the negotiations around confederations the the need to break them back apart and the need maybe we can discuss this as part of the bna act is provincial competencies and who gets to decide what within their particular jurisdictions which ends up being really the for constitutional law scholars in canada and and for most of the jurisprudence constitutional jurisprudence that we have going forward after that for uh, at least a good hundred years is about this federalism question and the division of powers within that new uh, British North America Act. You had pretty significant demographic change as well in, in what's now Ontario. Of course, it was growing quite rapidly. It was a source of, uh, it was a location for considerable settlement. Uh, you had this pattern emerging of, of double majorities in, in the mm -hmm. legislature where you needed a, led, a majority of the, what we now call the Ontario and the Quebec uh, positions in order to get anything done. And so it was a very unwieldy legislative arrangement. And I think Phil's right. It really reflects the preoccupations of uh, who gets to decide what, where in terms of schooling and language and that sort of stuff. So, okay, confederation. Yeah, so confederation wasn't a done deal, right? It was It was not entirely clear that it would happen. I mean, I just assumed like Sir John A., went out with his buds, <laughs> and they got really wasted, and then we got our confederation. <laughs> Not really. I mean, the, the maritime... Stop reading my dreams, Provinces Greg. began, the uh, maritime provinces began the conversation, and basically the Canadians crashed it <laughs> at, at Charlottetown. <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, and, you know, so there's a protracted negotiation, uh, which ultimately culminates in the British North America Act of 1867, which we now call the Constitution Act of 1867, which was more or less drafted by Canadians, 
by persons in Canada and was then enacted in the British Parliament without much debate, actually. If you look, you can look in vain for any really interesting debates or exchanges in the Hansard of the United Kingdom Parliament. It was just, you know, it was just like an incidental bit of colonial fluff and that the... It was a worthwhile the, Canadian ...that the Parliament initiative. had to deal with in the UK. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, so there's actually, in terms of a legislative history here in the UK Parliament, there's there's basically none. There is, of course, a drafting history in terms of the negotiations, in terms of what those who uh, convened themselves at Charlottetown and Quebec City, what they really intended or not. Uh, and this has been a source of considerable debate ever since. Yeah. The, I th- just to, to seize on a couple of things that, that are kind of important in terms of how we even talk about it today. So there was that division of powers question. So what are powers that belong to the federal government? What are powers that belong to the provincial governments? The other one that's interesting, at least in recent Canadian constitutional history, is what exactly was the purpose of the Senate and how important the Senate was to confederation. And so this ended up taking up a lot of space to have that upper body of uh, appointed peoples who would be able to represent the regions and uh, to, to ensure that it would be separate and distinct but still co-equal with the House of Commons. And ultimately, this has been a bugbear of the Canadian Constitution ever since. What do you do with this upper house? And what, what purpose is that upper house? Is it meant to represent the provinces? Is it meant to represent uh, linguistic groups? Is it meant to represent certain uh, minority interests in the country? Uh, is it meant to be partisan? I've right? always assumed it was just a a check of the wealthy people upon well, that, the not at all. That's all that's that's the only way I've really understood but, it. But it was there was never a Canadian aristocracy. Right. And so unlike the House of Lords, which if you read Bagot, right, it was all about the aristocracy. We're here. back to Bagot. Bagot. Oh, uh, but here, it's it, there has never been a, a Canadian aristocracy. And so the role of the Senate has not been to preserve the landed interests as was originally the case for the House of Lords. But, you know, just pick up on Phil's point. So the 1867 Act really does a couple of things of importance. It's mostly famous for the division of powers, what we would call federalism. And so Section 91, 92 really partitioned the world of powers between the provinces and the federal level. Which we're still fighting out so Which we're much. Fighting out. Beer, well, but, but read, oil, the, read, read them, right? And yeah. so it's a list of 19th century preoccupations, yep. right? And so the, the, the items which are all enumerated you have to figure what they mean might mean in a in a modern context. And then you also have to interpret the so-called basket clauses, right? And so at the federal level, Section 91, it talks about all matters not assigned to the provinces, which relate to peace, order, and good government. And so one vision, and it's probably the original vision that the framers really had in mind, was that the default for powers would really fall to the federal level um, because of this sort of sweeping basket clause. The province, though, the province has its own, the provincial powers under Section 92 talk about all matters of a purely local nature and talks about civil rights, civil rights in the, not in the you know, Martin Luther King sense, but civil rights in terms of property, tort, contract. Of course, that's a vast area. And the other thing, too, about provincial powers, if you look at the list, a lot of those provincial powers have become more important with times. Take, take education. And so in the 19th century, education meant one thing. Now, education is a whole other level of magnitude. Uh, and so the reality is after Confederation, in terms of that federalism, you had the final court of appeal for Canada, which was the Privy Council, the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council, uh, uh, which would constitute itself and, and hear appeals from was Canada. Cabinet? Uh, no, it's, no, it was it's, it, it would be a, effectively the House of Lords reconstituted for colonial appeals. Yeah. Colonial courts. And I think it's important to note, Craig, in, in that context of the JCPC, that ultimately when you, and this is, Interesting in light of uh, some passages from Beverly McLaughlin's new book, the uh, 
the British North American Act of 1867, when you read it, when you have a plain reading of it, envisages a centralized federation. Yeah. It envisages a, a strong federal government in part in reaction to the American Civil War and this idea of states' rights in the U.S. that we didn't want that type of thing happening here. We wanted a federal government that was stronger and more centralized. But over time, the JCPC rulings end up giving the provinces far more uh, control than, than right. maybe the original framers of the Constitution would have anticipated. Uh, and ultimately, the Supreme Court today has kind of landed on saying, well, look, I mean, that's just the way things are. If you guys want to change it, that's up to you. But this is how we've governed Canada now for more than 150 years. So we're not just going to upend this because somebody in 1867 wrote down a particular word in a particular way. Yeah. yeah so the, their lordships at the JCPC took a very different vision of what it was that confederation really meant to accomplish. And so the test really that the courts have applied is this idea of pith and substance. Uh, a given law from the provinces of the feds, is it constitutional under division of powers? Well, what's the pith and substance of that law? Does it fit within one of these envelopes of powers under 9192? But uh, effectively what the JCPC did was narrowly construe the federal powers and, and broadly construe the provincial powers. And so you ended up with one of the most decentralized federations in the world, arguably, in fact, I don't think it's even arguably, more decentralized than the American system, which was intended as a de decentralized federation. Yes, and that was always my understanding that somehow, like, like America had wanted to be decentralized, but ended up with a really strong federal government. Yeah, the strong, no, even incredibly stronger executive, as we're seeing play out. Um, in Canada, we were supposed to have this kind of strong government to protect us from this decentralized America, but it's yeah. kind of ended up in the reverse. And just to bring Her Majesty and back into it, I mean, I, I think Kate it's Crown important. Fanboy. Yeah, exactly. You got to bring that back in. The uh, w one of the signs of the fact that it was supposed to be a more centralized federation, one of the signs that we were still a, col a colony was the reservation and disallowance power. Yeah. So the uh, lieutenant governor in the province, who was effectively a federal representative in the in the idea of how it was constructed, could reserve bills and uh, disallow them in the provincial legislature uh, on the advice of the federal government. And similarly, the governor general, who was at that time in Canada uh, representative of the British government, could reserve and disallow legislation on the uh, advice or concerns of the imperial cabinet. So this is it, those powers which are being hotly debated today in light of Bill 21 in Quebec. Um, can the federal government still disallow uh, provincial legislation that it deems to be abhorrent? A um, number of people would say that's fallen into disuse, but uh, when the Constitution was patriated in 1982, those were left in. So there's this hot debate about exactly what constitutes uh, I'm sure that would constitutes be that so power. uncontroversial. <laughs> well, and it hasn't been used since I think the last time was early 1960s. So, so just one final set of points on the 1867 Act. We've talked about it in terms of a federalism framework, but of course the other thing it does is it creates the institutions that constitute modern Canada, at least modern Canada governance. So there are provisions that relate to the superior courts, and so the courts have a constitutional basis. There's a whole jurisprudence on that, as you might imagine. It creates parliament, so a House of Commons, a Senate, which Phil mentioned, and uh, makes the Queen the last aspect of Parliament. So there's there are three legs to that Parliament. The Queen's role in Parliament is effectively only to give royal assent and, and their parliamentary capacity. Uh, we can talk about legislative process at some point if people are interested. But but then just to circle back to the origins of our conversation, there's also the, the concept of the executive, right? And so you can read the 1867 Act and not know that we're governed in a cabinet system in which the head of government is a prime minister, you can read it and think that you know, that Charles I would be very happy in Canada because it looks like a very absolutist monarchical system with all sorts of powers that are accorded to the queen. And the re references to the queen because it was Queen Victoria at the time. 
The reality, though, is that we do not have such a system. Why? Because, as Phil mentioned last day, there is a preamble to the 1867 Act, which says that Canada is to have a constitution and principle similar to that of the United Kingdom. Now, preambles generally are not that important as a substantive legal matter. Sure. But this is by far the most important preamble probably in all of common law history. Uh, why? Because it effectively imports those grand precepts that we have been talking about. So the rule of law has been attributed to the preamble. Uh, the concept of judicial independence, in part at least, is attributed to the preamble. The concept of parliamentary supremacy, of parliamentary privileges. Uh, all these concepts, responsible government, they have their origin, and you can find this in Supreme Court and lower court jurisprudence, they have their origin in this preamble. And so that preamble becomes ultimately the most important vessel for the way we're actually governed in the society. And what, just a last point on that preamble and how we wrap all this back to responsible government is in the UK, you have the development of cabinet uh, solidarity, which ends up being what Gary Cox is going to call the efficient secret of the British Constitution, which is very true in our case too, namely, once that cabinet not only can carry the confidence of the House of Commons, but can also be a, a, a collective body that makes decisions together and holds together, from there flows this idea of then uh, having cabinet coming to dominate to some degree the House of Commons through the party system. And this is going to be even more important in the Canadian context where cabinet solidarity, ministerial responsibility, and ultimately very quickly after confederation, party discipline comes to mean that we end up with an executive dominant system because cabinet uh, has priority in the House of Commons and uh, through the party discipline and party system, it's able to control its members such that uh, it, it ends up being the more powerful of the two uh, in a more practical sense. Yeah, and the cabinet's not actually ever mentioned in the Constitution Act of 1867. There's a mention of the Privy Council. Nor is the Prime Minister, I believe? No, no oh. mention of the Prime Minister. Uh, no ministers are mentioned. Uh, so Privy Council is mentioned as advising the Queen, but the Privy Council is more than simply cabinet. In fact, anyone who's sworn into the Privy Council, that's a lifetime appointment. There is a constitutional convention, though, that the powers of the Privy Council are exercised only by those who are currently members of cabinet, right? So again, the glue that holds our system together is not the written text in the Constitution Act of 1867, but these norms, which we would call constitutional conventions, and I know Phil's got like a, a hierarchy of things here, but I, I would say just generically a norm, uh, which we call a constitutional convention, about who it is that in practice can do these things, that all is unwritten constitutional law. And unwritten. Unwritten constitutional yeah. law. I'm prepared to call it law. Some people wouldn't call it law, but I, I'll call it law. Well, I think increasingly, as we saw this past or past two weeks with the UK Supreme Court, a lot of these things, ultimately, these constitutional conventions are probably grounded in constitutional principles which are enforceable by the courts in Canada. We haven't gotten there yet, but we're pretty close. So... Uh, we didn't get to the Statute of Westminster. We didn't get to the Charter, but we'll save this for next time because actually there's some interesting stuff with regards to, you know, fill your area of specialty, which is, of course, crown powers and defense and security, and uh, which, which I actually find pr pretty interesting. This is this is a good podcast, guys. I, I think I only glazed over like maybe three times, so that's <laughs> that's pretty good. I just, I'm looking forward to the Island of Misfit Toys and where that fits in in this particular episode so uh, or next week's episode. So uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. Thanks uh, for everyone, and we'll talk to you next day. Next time.